This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello, and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. Sobriety begins when we leave alcohol behind, and then recovery begins as we reconcile our new lives with changes in our behavior and our thoughts. There's a lot of agreement about what's good for our bodies and our minds, but matters of the soul are personal and subjective. And tonight, we'll hear a variety of perspectives and experiences on the spiritual aspects of recovery. We'll also discuss how those who don't embrace the concept of the spiritual realm find recovery pathway that's a good fit. My name is Jean, and with me, of course, are Bubble Hour co-hosts Amanda and Catherine. Hello to both of you. Hello. Hello. Between the three of us, we have very different experiences on this topic, and how we plug those into our recovery is different for each of us. So, Amanda, you don't really subscribe to any particular religion, but you found a way to connect with the transcendent in recovery, correct? That's correct. And Catherine does have a religious background and does connect it into her program of recovery, And I, myself, am a religious person, we could say, who does not engage in a recovery pathway that addresses the spiritual. Now, we have three guests on the line tonight as well, Kate, Tracy, and Reverend Pilar. Hello, everyone. Hi, guys. Hi. Thank you for speaking with us tonight. Kate is a yogi, and the practice of yoga has fueled the spiritual aspect of her recovery. Tracy is going to be sharing how healing occurs in the life of an atheist, while Reverend Pilar helps us understand the difference between spirituality and organized religion and how they relate to recovery. So before we get rolling with questions and discussions, it's important to state that this show doesn't endorse any perspective as right or wrong. We're going to just spend a tiny little hour discussing one of the greatest mysteries of life, so obviously we will just scratch the surface on this topic and we want you to know that anything we leave out isn't a snub or an intentional oversight, but hopefully between all six of us, we'll leave you with some food for thought and some insights to consider. And really my greatest hope is that anyone who has felt unsure of where their particular beliefs fit in recovery programs or who's felt isolated in recovery because of that would make a connection here. So my mother always told me every good party host knows that you steer conversations away from politics and religion, but 
this isn't that type of a conversation. This is a warm, safe place among friends, and our goal here is just to discover how various perfect, uh, perspectives inform the journey. So some studies show that tapping into prayer and spirituality can enhance and even speed healing from trauma and medical injury. And others say that this is a testament to the power of placebo effect over the psyche. And whether one sees the spiritual experience as tangible and real or as a biochemical effect that produces a feeling of reality, I think both sides agree that it's important to take one's beliefs into consideration as a fundamental component in determining the most effective program for recovery. So, Reverend Pillar, we're going to start with you. You mm-hmm. are a minister yes. whose work includes helping people in recovery and lives transformed on a regular basis as people move through addiction recovery. How do you see the role of tending the spirit in healing from addiction? This is a huge question. <laughs> I, I guess I, 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 part of, I partly want to clarify, I suppose, what we mean by spirit. I, in my, in my job, I run a parish, so it's a Christian church, and so there's a certain amount of, I know that I, I know you're heading towards a religious question in a second, but the spiritual, I think, one of my favorite quotes about communion, which is something that we practice on a weekly basis, but from St. Augustine, which, uh, who was a fourth century, one of the fathers of the church, I guess you call him, he, he said that you receive your own mystery. And I think uh, mystery is actually, for me, at the base of that sort of word of spirit, because I don't think I can define it. Spirit is, attending of the spirit is, means something different for every, everybody who walks into my church, and, and they would classify themselves as Christian, I think. So tending the spirit is tending that other in ourselves, which goes beyond how I think about something or just how I feel about it. But there's this area of ourselves that we tend by paying attention to all of those other areas. I don't know if I'm making any sense there, but yeah, the role of Mm -hmm. tending spirit to me is about tending all of ourselves uh, until that becomes part of the larger picture. And do you find that helps propel people in their recovery when they start to tap into that other mysterious part of their being? I yeah I've done the I've done a lot of to name a program I don't know if that's okay if I do that but to name a program I've been asked to do step five for the AA folks and so I hear a lot of stories and yeah they're all reaching for something that's sort of beyond something physical that they can while grasp is maybe not the right word, <laughs> that they can hold on to for strength and courage and to help them with perseverance because that's, it's, a, it's, tough. it's a tough role. We talked a little bit, you touched on it. Let's talk a little bit about this, the term spirituality versus religion because a lot of times people use those for terms sure. interchangeably, mm-hmm. but really they're two different things. Mm-hmm. As I understand it, spirituality is an awareness of that transcendence, of mm-hmm. that other part of ourselves, as you mentioned, but religion is a construct that we plug that into. And when you, yeah. do you, would you say you could have one without the other? Simply, yes. Yes, I, I do think you can. I, I was in the classroom for 14 years, and I remember people, parents would say to me, how come my kid behaves for you and they don't behave for me at home? And I would say, because I have a construct, <laughs> because I have desks and I have a blackboard and I, my, my language arts class starts at eight and it finishes at 8.30. And they knew those constructs. And so they learned how to live within them. Um, now, some contracts are healthier than others. We construct all kinds of things that are, you know, bad for us too, like eating too much chocolate, but let's not go there. So they, so we have constructs that are healthy and some that are not. And so a construct basically gives us a framework within which to experience the spirituality. That to me is the way I think about it. And I don't particularly think being Anglican is correct or being Pentecostal is correct or, you know, or Buddhist or whatever the construct you've created is perfect. I don't, I think these are all, they're all humanly made, but I think we're all seeking something that at its core is beyond us, that it, at its center is somewhere outside of us in a way, but it taps into something profoundly central to who we are as human beings that cannot be defined by hair color and intelligence and emotional yeah things and yeah so I do think they're very different things and yet I think we use the construct to express it if that's helpful 
That's great. That lays a, a good foundation for some of our discussion today. And so, Catherine, in, mind, in light of what we've just heard, do you, do you mind sharing with us a little bit about your story and how your background, faith, played a role before and after sobriety? Yeah, of course. Thank you, everyone. I'm so happy, Reverend Pilar and Kate and Tracy, that you're here. Um, very grateful for your service. Um, so I did grow up in a Christian church community. We were regular Sunday church people. And I will also say that my parents were very um, social justice minded. So I did grow up with a concept of service as well. So that was all very meaningful. And I really was a good adherent to that particular tradition growing up and then also through a good part of my um, adulthood. I moved away from that particular church because, for me, some of the institutional items really weren't aligned with my values, and I was extra lost with that. And I would say that, for me, in sobriety, it's been a major spiritual journey for me. I love spiritual inquiry. I've shared here before that the day I got sober was for me, a massive spiritual surrender where I do have a concept of a higher power that to turn over my, my addiction was, that was the jumping off place for me. I, I would say that I'm in a constant state of prayer. I'm an adherent to the Anne Lamott structure of breath is prayer. Her three essential prayers, help, thanks, and wow, ongoing. I feel that I'm aligned with my greatest and highest good. I believe that's my birthright. So finding a, a program of recovery that had a concept of a higher power was a pretty good fit for me. And one of the things that I did do, I'm continuing to explore this, is when I first got sober, I found another church. So I still was pretty cool with being Christian. So I, I just was finding another denomination that might be a little better fit for me. Some of the things that I think about traditional religion, I think that tradition can be very grounding, you know, particularly in making the changes that we have to make in sobriety. The tradition can provide scaffolding, but particularly when you're upset. So, for example, even though I will use things like the loving-kindness meditation from Buddhism I'll also use my childhood prayers when I'm particularly lost. It's, you, you can go to that. It's grounding. I also think that human beings have used ritual for probably as long as we've been around, that there's something really tangible about lighting a candle or partaking in some sort of ritual that I think a lot of religious traditions bring us. And then lastly, just I believe that there's power in community. We, we talk about that all the time on this show, that in sobriety, we really encourage people to look for fellowship in whatever form that takes for you. And a religious community can provide fellowship and support. And there's, for me, power of prayer in groups. And so it's an ongoing thing for me. I think I'm still probably looking for exactly the right community, but it's a direction that I'm going in. And I think that can still align with, with my beliefs and, and my sobriety and, and certainly just in general that the concept of higher power has been pretty central. Catherine, tell, that tell us a, again a three-minute a three summary of what is God. <laughs> <laughs> of what you just spent your whole life figuring out, summarized in, in a few short sentences. Tell us the three parts of that prayer again that you said. Yeah, so Anne Lamott is, for, for anybody who's looking for some good reading, she's a wonderful novelist, but also essayist, and she is a sober woman. She's been sober for over 20 years, I believe, and she's a practicing Presbyterian, for what it's worth, and she's pretty open about that, but I think you, you don't have to be Presbyterian to read her. You don't even have to be Christian, because what she does is she finds grace in everyday moments of being with people that you love, being sober. She just, she really weaves that all in. So she recently published a book called Help, Thanks, Wow. And she says that those are the three essential prayers. And I'll give you an example of how that works for me. I was leaving a recovery meeting. I go real early in the morning every day. And 
I came out around the corner and I saw the sunrise coming up and it was so beautiful that I said, wow. And then I realized that was a prayer. So that's, I'm, I'm all, I'm in a constant state of that way, sort of offering everything up. That's great. I think those are three words that every alcoholic has to utter in, in the course of their recovery, probably over and over again, right? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, I'm, and, well. I'm always saying, I'm always saying that help me is a legit prayer. So particularly in early sobriety, when you're saying, what am I doing? I think it's also new. Help me becomes, can be a, a useful tool. Catherine, I have one more question for you. Would you say that you ever, um, like I, we talk a lot about shame and stigma of recovery, and I wonder if there's a lot of people that are worried about what people in my church knew that I'm in recovery, or which, of course, it's the one community where you probably were supposed to be embraced and forgiven. But did you feel any of that kind of concern in, in connecting that in your life at all? What I hear probably more commonly is that people maybe have, no pun intended, church hangover from however they were. A lot of people were raised in some sort of religious tradition and then in adulthood get away from it because of the more human uh, and flawed aspects. Um, You can read a great book by Danny Shapiro, who she talks about how she was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home and then got away from that. And her book's called Devotion. And it's all about how she's trying to find her right path. So I feel like there there could be this fear of stigma. I'm not in a religious community where I'm really um, talking openly about the connection between religious practice and sobriety. So I personally haven't had that issue. I I generally hear it more the other way around of, Mm -hmm. you know, how do I I have this kind of leftover feeling from childhood about church or religion or something organized and people are nervous about that. I just think that it can be useful to remember that some of those traditions are very, that's a solid thing to hold on to, especially in early sobriety. To say, go sit in a mm. church where you're, you're comfortable or go, you know, do whatever religious practice that you know, because that can be, there can be a lot of comfort there. Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles, little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. We've talked about some of the more traditional Western roots that we thought about, but Kate, let's bring you in because I want to hear you tell us about what it means to be a yogi and what um, the effect is on your program of recovery and how that changed for you over time. Sure. First, I have to say that without an established yoga practice, I am not sure that I would have even gotten sober. For me, the two really go hand in hand. Without yoga, I have no sobriety. And without sobriety, I have no yoga. The really interesting thing about a yoga practice that I've found is that most people I know who have come to the mat, including me, are seekers of some kind. So everybody comes looking for something. Uh, a good number of the people I know through my yoga community are in recovery from something. So I think it's a really great path to reconnect with who you are. The practice of yoga in and of itself is journeying towards that truest place within you, the the place that existed before the world came in, essentially, before society put labels on you, before you had any of your experiences that kind of shaped 
who you are. And I think for, for those of us who really found ourselves in, in active addiction, that piece of us is completely forgotten, but yet we're seeking something to fix us. At least that was, was my experience. I practiced yoga for a long time before I got sober, but I always had this strange sort of duality inside myself where I stayed on the fringes of the yoga community because I, I felt like a little bit of a fraud. I had this huge secret that I went home to, but yet showed up for my hour, 90 minutes, whatever it might be, and put on the, the yogi face and sort of let people think that's who I was. And it wasn't until I really started taking a, a much closer look at how I wanted my life to be that I got more involved with the community around where I live. I actually, yesterday, was cleaning my house and randomly found a journal entry that had been shoved into the back of the cabinet. And it's from the very first day that I started working at the yoga studio that I teach at now. And it talks about how I really want to use this experience to better myself. And I know that I need to cut down on my drinking. I can't drink by myself at home anymore. But for every line about wanting to stop, there's another line about trying to talk myself out and stopping too. And then the journals went on and every two days I would say, oh God, I did it again. Why do I do this to myself? I, I want to be better. I want to live more fully. Here I am at the studio. I'm hungover again. And then I found an entry from being at the yoga studio one week before I got sober. And the voice in that entry is something had finally clicked. And I think the two are very connected. So for me, once I removed the alcohol from my life, I didn't go into a 12-step program right away. I was sober for about a year before I did that. And I really turned to my yoga practice as a higher power. Um, the, the concept of a higher power was something I tried to embrace right away, although I didn't get it for a long time. I've never been to church in my life. I don't have a, a religion per se. I don't have a, a sort of big knowledge base around religion. So the concept of sort of God and a higher power was something that was really foreign to me, but I knew that I needed something to grasp onto that was bigger for myself. And in that time, yoga and the yoga community was that for me. And through my physical practice, I was able to start to believe in myself as a body, as a mind, as a person. And in turn, that helps to feed day after day of continuing to, to stay sober because it gave me a, a belief in myself that I, that I didn't have before and taught me patience, which is certainly not something that I had during any of my days of drinking. So it's very ingrained in who I am. And once you get beyond the kind of physical practice, the, the asana, which is one of the limbs of, of the yoga sutras, then you start to explore the deeper things behind it, the, the ways of living, the ways that you can bring the yoga teachings out into your lifestyle, into your day-to-day -day life. And those are, are very much all about truthfulness and practicing nonviolence and being kind to yourself and others. And they say that if you don't practice this, they're not saying that you're good or bad, which is a really important thing, I think, for people in recovery to always think about because they think we exist so much in these goods or bads, right? So you don't exist in a good or bad. And if you're not following the precepts that are kind of set up by the teachings of yoga, the only person that's going to suffer is you. I think for me that has been a really beneficial teaching because I was a very outward, blaming alcoholic. It wasn't about me. I couldn't think about me and how I was suffering or that I was doing it to myself. I was very good at putting all of that somewhere else. It was work or neighbors or relationships or lack thereof, never looking inward. So I think the, the biggest lesson has been to learn how to do that and step four, really sit with yourself and make, take the moral inventory. And I think that's a beneficial thing for anybody to explore, but especially for those of us in recovery. A lot of people on the, the online board that, we, that I belong to in, in life 
are exploring the yoga practice. A lot of people are, are looking for that, and I think it's great. It's just a gift that everyone can give themselves, a, a little taking back a little piece just for them and along the way learning how to believe in themselves again. And I think all of that then in turn feeds the exploration into whatever kind of spiritual path that you choose to go on. So how did it change for you then, Kate? Because you really talk about turning within and connecting with your essence. And when you were actively drinking, did you find that you had a little bit of a block up or were you able to really turn inward? And afterwards, as you got more um, comfortable with yourself and more authentic and whole about how you were living, was there a, a quick change in how you experienced your practice or was it a slow evolution away from the old way of being? Yeah, I, when I was thinking, I absolutely could not and did not look inward. If you take, if you look under the covers at all, it would just all fall apart. So I didn't do it at all. It was very, I feel like I was a yogi in the most superficial sense in that I said I was, but I didn't actively live the principles. And for me, when I quit drinking, everything changed immediately, including my practice. It hasn't been a completely bump-free road for any stretch of the imagination, but it did change immediately. So I think it was just, it was so, I was so ready to let go of that part of my life, that that duality that I spoke about earlier, the, the part that I felt like I wasn't being authentic to, was then able to burst forth almost immediately. And I, I really threw myself into my yoga practice and being around other yogis. I could see that they had something that I wanted, that they had somewhere along the way achieved this kind of inner peace and this confidence in themselves and a way to be peaceful in the world without constantly struggling. And I felt like I had, for all of that time, always been constantly struggling. So to turn it over and release that, like Catherine said, she, the day that she got sober, she had this huge sort of spiritual surrender. And I, I definitely relate to that. I think it was one of the reasons why I was so willing to accept a higher power quickly because I, can, I woke up on the day that I decided to get sober and just saw it. That's it. And I always liken it to the window opened. And what? Was it very freeing? It was a huge sort of weight being lifted. So to have that kind of released, the obsessive thought, the constant lying and all the shame and all the guilt, it kind of finally have made that decision that I'd been going back and forth on for years, allowed me to open up channels that happened immediately. And my practice then grew exponentially right away because I was able to embrace the teachings of the Yoga Sutras, of my teachers, of the people around me who had a far more spiritual and peaceful life than I did. It's so something it changed for me over time. Sorry, what? Sorry. I was just going to say that it's, it did change for me over time in that it's just, it's grown. It certainly plateaus from time to time, but the longer I go on the journey of being sober, it definitely allows me, and the more I, I read and learn and I'm open to things, it definitely allows me to change along with that. And, and as I said, sort of at the beginning of when I started speaking, that now the two things go hand in hand, for sure. Something you said really struck me about not, in your practice before, not wanting to really look inward. I've always thought, maybe based on my own experience and projecting it on everyone else, that the reason <laughs> so many people drink a lot in the evening is so that they can go to bed and fall asleep before that moment of where it's just you and you're alone in your head and it's dark and you have to face yourself for that moment before you fall asleep. I, I contend that moment terrifies people and that um, mm -hmm. drinking is one way to hop over it. But eventually we have to get there. And so as you're talking about practicing yoga and, and turning inward, I, it takes me right back to that that moment where I just, when I quit drinking, I thought, oh my God, how am I ever going to fall asleep at night? <laughs> and, oh um, yeah, you know, you do just fine, but I wasn't falling asleep. It was that I just, I dreaded being alone with myself. 
in, Absolutely. inside. I, when I was drinking, I would start the second that I got home from work and just continue on and on. It was really solitary, and I couldn't imagine how I could possibly fill two, three, four hours with, without drinking. It didn't make any sense. It was the only thing that I knew how to do. Um, and now I go to class, or I teach, or I practice, or I don't do any of those things, and I live my life. But I definitely agree that for many people, that's, that's the scary thing. It's the after, the, the time when you're alone, when you're not at work, and then the kids are in bed. That's a hard time. Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. Others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. This is Catherine. I, I was just going to say that I, I jotted down something you said and you, you mentioned the physical and that, that seems so important to me. I know that one thing that I've been learning uncomfortably in sobriety is to um, be in my body because mm-hmm. I was always astrally projecting to get out of the feelings that were actually alive and sparking things in my body and uh, then drinking, of course, um, numbed all of that so being in my body and being a part of the physical world and letting emotions appear in my body good ones and bad ones I think is just a really essential part of the wholeness of recovery however you get there but just being present and in your body and thank you for sharing your experiences that that there there's practices that can help us do that that strikes me as really important Absolutely. This is Amanda. And I, and, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say that I talked. I, I taught this morning, in fact, and I talked to my students a lot about giving themselves an extra breath or two to tap into strength that they didn't know was there. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that, and most of us in life, but especially those of us in active addiction, can do that. It's what's the easiest thing. What? How do I get out of this? quickly, or there's a little bit of sensation, so I'm immediately going to come out of it. So in yoga, we talk a lot about there's a big difference between sensation and pain. If you have pain, you can back away from pain, but sensation is good. Sensation means that you're opening channels. Sensation means that you are tapping into inner reserves of strength or maybe even emotion. Sometimes people breathe into their hips and cry because it's releasing something that they didn't mm-hmm. even realize they were holding on to. So the physical practice is almost number one, which then as you start to show up for yourself and learn what that feels like, then you're able to move on along the journey. This is Amanda, <laughs> and I was going to just say it, I, I love what you said with that because I know um, this is going to sound a little strange, but like when I am emotion. When I'm stressed out, I always say I carry it in my butt, and, and I'm serious. It's like my lower back <laughs> I have, and I, I have always wanted to do yoga for that physical release. Like I know that, and I never thought about it, that it was it, of it as also a spiritual release because I've never done it, and I've, I, I just know that I want to do it. And, and I can see how the two tie because I know that when I'm mentally disturbed, that I, I feel it physically when I'm really mm-hmm. upset about something. And I've been doing a lot of sitting with my feelings and 
that's something that I am able to do in recovery today. And what Jean was saying, my whole life, I have had to fall asleep. This is, again, goofy, but I've always had to fall asleep with the TV on. Like, I have to have it on timer. I can't. And that's, you know, when I was drinking and since I've gotten sober. And lately, I've been finding that the TV actually is a distraction to me. I can actually just lay my head on the pillow at night and go to sleep. And it's because I, I, I work through my feelings through the day because I feel my feelings like it's there. My mind isn't a jumble at night anymore. And I'm not, I don't know if it was fear or just I couldn't fall asleep because I had needed something to shut my brain off or whatever it was. But being in recovery, just being able to sit through my feelings really helped me. I can just lay my head on my pillow at night and go to sleep. A simple thing. That's a, that's and I'm going to try yoga. <laughs> Good. So Kate, tell us some ways that people can take that with them. What are some ways that we could just practice some yoga is very quiet and people that I picture enjoying a lovely session and then going out into traffic and giving someone the finger or something. <laughs> like, how do you maintain it? <laughs> when you leave well, that it room, happens. You take it with you? Yes. I live in the city. I experience some road rage on a daily basis. I won't lie, but... They say that if you are breathing and moving, you're practicing yoga. So you can think of a lot of what you're doing throughout the day from moving meditation. I think it also taps into what Catherine was talking about, that being in constant state of prayer, breathing is praying and, and things like that. I'm somebody who deals with a lot of anxiety. I've worked through a lot of it, luckily, through, through the steps and through my practice, but it's definitely still there. So a lot of what people can do is try and use their breath to focus in on the moment. Breath's a magical thing and not always thought about. We really, in, in the physical practice, you use it to get in and out of postures, to get deeper into things. But in your everyday life, it can also be used to calm you down, to focus you, to take away some of that anxiety. You can also do really simple stretches, things that are going to make your body physically feel better. That can be a really big relief, especially those of us who have Stressful days, stressful jobs, stressful home life, whatever it might be. If you can just take five minutes to yourself. If you don't have five minutes, you can take five breaths and kind of breathe in deeply. Maybe you close your eyes. Maybe you do a visualization. Maybe you focus on a color or something tangible that makes you really happy and just breathe. Do a little bit of stretching, anything that's going to bring yourself a, a pleasurable sensation. Those things that are really easy to do when you don't even have, when you don't have a lot of time and things that are going to feed back, feed the energy back into your soul, something that'll feed the positives back into your life. Awesome. Okay, we're going to bring Tracy into our discussion now. Tracy, are you still there? I'm here. Oh, good. So, (laughs) Tracy, you define your belief as atheist. So I want you to tell us what that means to you and how it shapes your experience in recovery. I am an atheist. I'm not an agnostic. So I don't believe in any kind of religion, any kind of higher power, any kind of transcendent spirituality, anything like that. And I don't even accept the possibility of that, which really disturbs people. So that obviously (laughs) shapes how I have to approach sobriety because most of the sort of standard sort of models don't fit that at all. So it's been an interesting journey trying to find a, trying to find a recovery plan that works for me. And you spent some time, didn't you, trying to go against what you, I wouldn't say go against, mm-hmm. but yeah, trying to you know, plug into a program that, that you tried to go along with the idea that yeah. it just didn't as you described it. Can you tell us what that was like? Yeah, I spent 10 years in the well-known recovery fellowship that shall not be named and stayed sober for 10 years, despite that, I think. It was useful in that I was a teenager at the time when I started, and I found some friends, but the whole sort of, the whole program that was based around felt entirely inauthentic to me. Lots of folks saying, oh, just pick some, anything can be a higher power. It can be a chair. It can be the group. It can be whatever. And I just felt like that was just really lame, actually. It just felt really inauthentic. It felt like just it was just stretching things a little too far for me. And so I also felt like I couldn't actually be my authentic self with folks because 
no one wanted to hear it, honestly. It's, it was seen as my sort of beliefs were really seen as an attack on folks who believe differently. I think if I had been maybe an agnostic or open in any way to any kind of transcendent spiritual thing without a label, I would have been able to make that work. But I don't, as I said, I don't even accept the possibility of that. And so ultimately I walked away from that and did start drinking again several years after that, not necessarily because of that or not. So when I got sober this time around, four and a half years ago, I think that the big thing was to be able to say, I can find a different way. That's not the only game in town. And by looking for a different way that fits my belief system and fits the way that I view alcoholism, like that's going to be okay and I can stay sober that way. And that was a very freeing experience to just be able to let go of the, I need to do it in a particular way and I need to find some way to torture myself into making this work for me. And just saying, I can't, I won't, and I'm never going to make that work for me was very freeing. And made my recovery much stronger. So, As you're talking about this, it makes me think about resentment because that's such a huge thing for us in recovery mm-hmm. is to really address our resentments. And yet if you're feeling that you're in a place that isn't a fit for you, I would think that would just... Oh, it's a recipe for resentments. Yeah. 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 And yeah. so how did... how You said it was very freeing to connect mm-hmm. with was a better program. So can you tell us a little bit about what worked better for you now? So for me, I had to think, what is alcoholism? For me, it's not a spiritual problem and there's not a spiritual solution. It's a disease, right? It's a disease that has a physiological basis. Also, like many people who turn to the self-medication side, I had underlying issues of chronic depression, anxiety, trauma, that I never got help for, never got medical help for. And so, as with many people, I tried to medicate. And so for me, having that understanding of alcoholism, I went to try to build a rational, evidence-based sort of medical approach to recovery that included a pragmatic skill-building element to help me avoid the kinds of actions or ways of living my life that might drive me to self-medicate again after I'd gotten some time and gotten sort of free of that haze of active drinking, I did realize that those underlying issues I had needed treatment or I would keep medicating. So now my recovery is based around I see a psychiatrist, I take medications, and I just live my life. And it works really well. But something and, that I'm... He- Something that I'm hearing, Tracy, this is mm-hmm. Catherine, yes. but you're talking about authenticity, and, and Kate mm-hmm. mentioned truthfulness as well, and I think that, that this could be a huge takeaway from this whole show, that Reverend Pillar, Kate, and Tracy are all saying that there's different ways of being authentic, mm-hmm. and for me, a lot of my problems, including my alcoholism, arose out of my inability to be my authentic self. And that once I got really honest and truthful with myself, starting with the fact that I was an alcoholic and I cannot drink safely, I have a different way of going about it. But since Tracy's a, a personal friend and has been a big supporter of mine since very early in my recovery, I'll, I'll throw you a bouquet now, oh. Tracy, for... For that one right back at you. Thank you, ma'am. The being authentic and not being afraid to be to tell the truth about who we are, starting with our addiction, is just essential to recovery. And then as we're talking about tonight, there's different ways of crafting a life around that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just it's, it's really resonates with me when you say that. Yeah, I think that for me, it was having spent sort of 10 years in in a a group with sort of a a different mindset of mine, there was a lot of worry when I first got sober again. They're like, I had so internalized the whole everyone, like, you have to have a spiritual awakening, you have to have a spiritual solution to this, or you're never going to be a dry drunk, or you're never going to stay sober. And it's amazing how, like, that fear, even though I knew it wasn't true, like, I had to get past that because I didn't have, and like I said, I'm, I, I don't accept the idea of a spiritual awakening, so I didn't have one. I just was like, one day, I'm like, you know what? I've got a kid, and I've got to be a grown-up, and moderation doesn't work for me, and so I need to stop, and I need to figure out what it is I need to do to 
not start again. And it wasn't anything, wasn't anything over the top. It was just like, all right, you know what? I've got to be a grown up and I've got to be a mom and I've just got to do the things that will let me do that. And that was, that works for me. I don't, I don't need, I don't need bells and whistles. I just live my life and do my thing. Tracy, this is Dean. I think it's so important that we have your voice in this discussion Mm -hmm. because I, I fear that there are people who want help and, and don't really know how to connect with help because they may be under the impression that there isn't a fit for them because they, they don't, um, whether they're atheist or just don't want to connect recovery yeah. and, and faith or whatever yes. that is. So I think it's really important that we, we realize and what we're talking about here is that we've got to define how we feel and what we believe and then there's so many pathways to recovery and it's not that one's right and one's wrong. It's that mm-hmm. they all get you there. Yep. It's, and if one isn't working for you, then hop on another one. And, and take yeah. that. Do you think that's a fair statement? I do. And I think that what's interesting is when I first got sober, which was well over 20 years ago because I was a teenager and oh, now I'm, I'm 41 now, but they didn't, there, there are pure fellowships now besides the main one that didn't actually exist. Back 20 years ago, when I first got sober, there's you know one in particular that I particularly like that started 20 years ago. And if 20 years ago I said, oh, I think I really want to check that out, it was I wouldn't have even known where to find it. I didn't even have a computer back then, so it's not like I could search the internet. But I think that if people are, I don't think people need to try to force themselves into any kind of program of recovery doesn't feel right to them. And I don't think they have to try certain things before they say, I think it's okay to say from the beginning, I need to get sober. I know what's out there. I know that X, Y, and Z are not for me. And I think we have to respect that and not tell people, oh no, but you really should try it first or this or that. Like, I think that there should be more discussion about different programs and different fellowships and medical approaches versus non-medical approaches um, or combinations of all those things together if that's what you need. And I think there's a lot more out there now. And I think that people can hopefully find it if they're willing to get past the fear that maybe doing something that's not quite the usual path, you know, won't get them sober. Like, they can get sober. I think, to me, you know, you talk about placebo effect. Like, my program works for me, and I think because of the placebo effect, I believe it's going to work for me, so it does. And so... If you believe that a particular program is going to work for you, it's very likely going to, whatever it is. I want to suss out yeah. some common ground here. One, one thing that is really helpful mm-hmm. in any recovery is getting away from feeling like we have to control everything. Addicts are generally control freaks because that's what gets us there and that's what keeps us there sometimes. So handing over the control is an easy thing to do if you um, are a person who believes in a higher power or believes that there's something other that you can hand it over to. How do you get out of yourself and what do you do when you're overwhelmed if you don't have that realm to look to to be submissive and hand things over to? To me, the whole, again, the whole handing over things, it's not a concept that has any meaning to me. For me, it's just, it's a pragmatic kind of analysis. What can I control and what I can't control? usually involving other people that I can't control. But as, as long as I recognize and I'm willing to stop and say, is this a situation that I can control or should control or have any hope of controlling, <laughs> it's pretty clear that usually it's not. I don't need to hand it over to anything. It's just pragmatic understanding that there's very, within, there's very little within my control other than myself. And even then, I'm not sure. <laughs> That is entirely under my control either. But I don't believe, like I said, the whole idea of handing something over, it just it doesn't have any meaning for me. But the whole idea of letting go of control of the things I can't control is totally a reasonable thing and sort of a standard in my life. All right, everybody, this is where we leave off for this shorter version of this conversation. But the episode does continue for another 30 minutes, and you can hear that 
if you join us over on Patreon, where we have the extended versions ad-free of all of our shows. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for walking this walk with us. We're glad you're here. Sober is a great way to live. And if it's something you aspire to, keep going. It's worth the effort. If you are walking this walk, please know you're not alone. We thank you for being here. Until next time, please take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies to hide. We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side. It just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine. When you I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Oh, yes, I You don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be clear You don't need to whisper to confession them person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror and the one who matters most can always hear when you say I'm old different not proud but that was me and when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power oh you said I'm I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Who is happy?